If you have your Bibles, why don't you join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies. Just slip your hand up. They'll be happy to get you a copy of Scripture to follow along as we study God's Word this morning. We've been going through 1 Peter together. Last Sunday morning, we began chapter 2, left off there in verse This morning, we're going to actually look at verses 4 to 8. I was going to go all the way down to verse 10, but I think we're going to look at 4 to 8 this morning, and then next Sunday morning, uh, for your awareness, we're going to just look at verses 9 and 10 and actually celebrate communion together uh, next Sunday morning, so you can come with your heart prepared to partake of the Lord's Supper. But this morning, we'll begin in verse 4 and go down as far as verse 8, and would you stand together with me as we do out of respect for God's Word? As I read our passage of scripture. 1 Peter 2 beginning in verse 4. Peter says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. And Father, we humbly ask now for the assistance and the help of your Holy Spirit as we open up the word of God. Lord, we want to continue in an attitude and an expression of worship as we just submit our hearts to what you would want to say to us personally and individually. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless your word now as we open it together And that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, our interpreter, and our instructor. And that you would speak personally into each and every one of our lives in a powerful way. Lord, we thank you in advance. That's what you want to do. And we pray you'd speak to us now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what would you say is God's building program? In our world, as we look all around us, certainly in life, there are lots of different approaches, it seems, that people take when it comes to building, whether it's building a structure physically, or whether it's uh, building a business, or building an organization, or sometimes we talk about building a life for yourself, or building a life together with someone else. We use terms like building a family, or even, let's say, building the church. But I think the question needs to come to mind for those of us who are here this morning is what is God's building program? What's God's process when it comes to building? What is God's purpose when it comes to building? And especially as it pertains to the things of spiritual life. You know, I find it very interesting that the first analogy that Jesus himself used, if you remember, in regards to the church, when he referred to the church, and of course he wasn't referring to a physical structure when he said the term church. The first time the word church appears, it's on the lips of Jesus, and he's talking about the group of people collectively who would be his followers. And Jesus, the first time he uses the word church, refers to it in regards to, remember, a building process. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus pictures or portrays, you could say, this stable rock foundation of which we know he is. And then he pictures this solid rock foundation and him building something off of that. Jesus is both the foundation, we know that, as well as Jesus is also the architect who is leading the way in the building process and who is guiding it along. And indeed, please understand, there are specific ways that Jesus goes about building when he does. 
He builds with certain purposes in mind and there is a certain pattern and way whereby Jesus accomplishes his building process. And our passage in front of us, if you take note as we read it together, is about being built up, it says, as a spiritual house. And the purpose of being built up as a spiritual house as God's people is so that the presence of God may dwell among us. So I say that to point out to you this as we begin. Yes, your life, whether you enjoy it or not or recognize it or not, your life, my life individually, is really going to be like an ongoing, never-ending renovation Project. Has anybody ever taken note of that before? It seems like there's constant renovations going on inside your life. Well, that's purposeful by design, and that's a good thing and not a bad thing. And in the same way, the church, a local church, really is going to always be like a construction site where the Lord is always working among us and working in us and working through us. And our text will indicate this reality and show us and let us see some of the ways how by God himself is accomplishing these works and doing his building among us. Remember we said last week that chapter 2, it seems the focus of it is really on spiritual growth. Uh, And we saw last week in our first few verses together that we are instructed how we can grow via our personal responses to God, particularly in two areas Peter talked about in verse 1 and 2. First of all, by ridding ourselves from feeding on things in our lives that really are just sinful and unhealthy. He talked about in verse 1 how we all need to lay aside or repent of or rid ourselves of things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking because these things are sinful, they're unhealthy, and they are perpetual things that we all struggle with even as Christians and we need to be continually ridding ourselves from them and laying them aside when we find them in our lives. And then secondarily, we also can contribute to our our own growth by retaining a diet and dependency upon the word of God in our lives so that we may nourish our spiritual condition. He talked about in verse 2 of the importance how just like a newborn babe dependent upon the, the milk nursing from its mother that gave life to it, how we have to desire the pure milk of the word and he says that you may grow thereby. That it is essential to spiritual growth. It's essential to spiritual health. And the last thing Peter said in verse 3 is that we have experienced the Lord, he said, since you've tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious. And we mentioned how when you taste something, that's just the start. That's the beginning. When you taste something, that's the beginning of experiencing it for yourself. But there is still much more to be partaken of. You've just tasted it. Now you can continue to partake of the rest that's available there to you. So it is with that understanding that, yes, we've experienced the graciousness of Jesus. We've experienced the grace of God in our lives. But we can't stop there. There is more to be experienced if we're to grow and develop. And that is why Peter then transitions in verse 4 by saying the first three words, we must be coming to him. To who? To the Lord. To the one that we've already experienced as gracious when he saved us and many times before we've had encounters and experiences with him. But we have to continue coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious. So take note here. Our first thing you could say in God's blueprint for building our spiritual life, the first thing very clearly we see is an understanding of the value of continually seeking Jesus. When you look at God's blueprint for building and working in your life, one of the primary things is understanding the value of continually seeking Jesus. Notice those first three words. They are critical and essential. Peter says, coming to him, coming to the Lord, coming to Jesus. Now that's spoken to Christians who have already come to Jesus in salvation initially. That is, we have already come and encountered Jesus Christ, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have our eternal life 
assured for us and our eternity reserved in heaven. We've already surrendered to his lordship. We've embraced him and decided to follow him. Really, that was all of what chapter one was about, how to get saved and begin a spiritual life. And listen, today, if you have never come to Jesus for the first time, to experience the forgiveness of your sins, if you have never come to Jesus to surrender your life to him as Lord, we sure hope that you'll make that commitment, that decision by faith this morning before you leave this place. Because that's absolutely critical and that is step one to lay the foundation for anything that God wants to do in your life. First, you have to come to him. You have to come to him by faith, like a humble child, realizing you can do nothing to deserve his love, that you can do nothing to earn your way into heaven, but you have to let Jesus as the Savior forgive your sins, take away your sins, and give you the gift of eternal life. And we sure hope and pray if you've never come to him the first time, that you'll take that step and make that commitment this morning. But what Peter is talking about Here is something he is stating to Christians who've already made that decision, who have already come to Jesus initially for salvation and are following him as the Lord of their life. He says we now have to be coming to him, not a reference to salvation initially, but we've already entered that relationship, but he's stating we now need to be coming to Jesus repeatedly routinely that there even after we start the relationship with christ we now need to be coming to jesus regularly in fact the language there when you look at it in the original speaks of a habit of continuous approach that's what the language conveys a habit of continuous approach for interaction with jesus that is coming to him routinely continually coming to him with regularity and consistency That's very, very important. It refers, if you would, to the relational element of our spiritual life. And here's what I mean by that. In our walk with Jesus, I just had a conversation with one of my daughters about this recently in regards to people, you know, questioning in school, what's this religious thing? You seem like a religious person. And and she expressed how she said to her friend, listen, I'm not religious. Don't call me religious. I have a relationship with with God. I have a relationship with Jesus. It's something different. And we as Christians, really, do we not boast? And sometimes we even almost emphatically defend because people call us religious or your Christianity or your religion thing. We're emphatic sometimes to almost in a defensive way say, look, I'm not religious. I have a relationship with the Lord. I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, can I remind us this morning, the word relationship implies personal, continuous, intimate interaction and fellowship with a person. That's what the word relationship implies. See, if I can illustrate, it is one thing to to meet a person. It is another thing to continually meet with a person with regularity and consistency. It is one thing to know a person. Hey, I know him. Hey, I know her. It's one thing to know a person. It is a totally different and much deeper and further thing to be getting to know a person. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's one thing to say, I know him. It's another thing to say, I'm getting to know him. It's one thing to say, hey, I've met that person. It's another thing to say, I'm regularly meeting with that person. And the question this morning has to become, which describes your experience with the Lord if you're a Christian? The text indicates to us that God's heart and design is that the latter would be the case, that we would be meeting with the Lord continuously, that we would be getting to know the Lord repeatedly and constantly by spending time with him and coming to him in a relational sense again if i can illustrate it's like the marriage relationship yes there is the marriage ceremony and the marriage ceremony that's the commitment that's the dedication that's the moment of okay we have decided to enter into this lifelong shared relationship together but a marriage ceremony is the start then there's this whole other thing called a married life 
where you continually spend time with that person, where you share your life with them, where you interact with them, where you continue to have developing, ongoing relationship through the marriage relationship. One thing to have a marriage ceremony. It's another thing to be experiencing a married life. Listen, the Bible teaches that we, in a sense, are like the bride of Christ and Jesus is the groom. When you came to Jesus in salvation, that was the day you married him. That was the day you said yes to Jesus, you made your vows and you started the, the relationship. You, started, you made the commitment, but there's supposed to be an ongoing relationship. That's what the Christian life is intended to be, that continual experience of coming to Jesus. Jesus himself spoke of this in this way regarding connection with him. In John 15, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide, the idea is remain or continue in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It's very clear. Jesus points out this important and critical issue of continuing with him, remaining with him in fellowship continuously. And that continual fellowship is critical to allow the Lord, by his spirit, to be at work in our lives. The picture there is like a vine and branches. And when a branch is connected to the source, to the vine, then the sap can flow through the branch and fruit can be produced. But if you disconnect the vine from the branch, you disconnect the ability for the sap to flow through and to produce the work and the changes that are intended to take place. And in the same way for us, we have to remain connected to the Lord and keep coming to the Lord so that the work of God by his spirit, the sap of his spirit, can continue to be at work flowing through our lives so that the Lord can continue the renovation process in me, so that the Lord can continue to do necessary construction and development. And if we're not coming to him, letting him work in our lives, let's be honest, when we're not coming to him and letting him work in our lives, very, very quickly, we all find that in a short period of time, spiritual deterioration sets in. And real quick, we realize things start falling apart in our lives. Very quickly, we come to see that things start breaking down spiritually and falling apart in our lives morally. It's an automatic experience. If you and I desire to grow spiritually, to develop with the Lord, and to keep moving forward and letting him build in us everything he intends, it is critical that we stay committed to investing in our relationship with him, that we make time to come to him through his word that his word may speak to us what the voice of God wants to say, that we would make time to come to him through prayer, that we make time to come to him through worship and song, through gatherings of worship, when Jesus is present and when he is at work. Because he said, whenever two or three gather in my name, I am there in the midst. Listen, one of the reasons that I like to come to church is because I know Jesus comes to church. And I like to spend time with Jesus. And I know Jesus hangs out among the people of God. He promised when two or three get together in my name, I show up. I, I visit the meeting. And I know therefore, hey, okay, then the presence of God and the work of God is going to be taking place there. And I want to experience that. I need to experience that. Now, let me say this in relation to what we're talking about. Even in these very things of coming to Jesus through his word and through prayer and through gatherings of worship, even in those things, let us always stay sensitive, and hear me here, let us stay sensitive that we are indeed coming, listen, to Him. Coming to Him. And here's why I point this out, because I know firsthand, I love the Word of God, I can come to the Word of God, and sometimes if I'm not careful, I come to the Word of God academically. And if I'm only coming to the Word of God academically and it becomes nothing more than an intellectual exercise because I love knowledge or you love knowledge, you can come to the Word of God without ever truly coming to Him. 
The Pharisees were guilty of this. Jesus said in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you find eternal life, but you fail to see these are the very scriptures that testify of me. Jesus said, boy, you know all the print on the pages, you know all the facts in the book, but you're missing the person behind the page. And see, I can come to the word of God and, and study it and read it, and if I'm not careful, there can be a disconnect and I'm not coming to it in a way to come to him, to hear his voice speaking to me. Let me encourage you, when you come to the word, make sure you're coming to him. And you're coming to the word saying, Lord, speak to me. I want to hear your heart. I want you to say something to me. There is a very fine line there where we can begin to have a disconnect. In the same way, people can, and it is good, to come to church. But people can come to church as a religious routine. It's just what we do on Sunday. It's kind of the good moral thing we do because we want our family to have some moral fiber work. And, and we can come to church in a religious routine and never come to Jesus. People can come to church regularly and consistently without really coming to him and meeting him. Again, can I remind you, Jesus in his own words in Matthew 15 declared this. Jesus said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me boy that's searching Jesus says we can actually honor him with our lips and worship him and the worship actually be in vain that is empty because it's missing a heart connection so very very important yes we must be coming to him as routine regularly seeking him but also be careful of the emphasis of that last word that we're coming to him and I think Peter points that out because he put a real strong emphasis at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 on the Word of God. And we, we, we emphasize the importance of the Word of God. But we need to be careful that we're coming to the God of the Word at the same time when we even come to the Word. So Peter also here indicates to us a reason why, in verse 4, we should come to Jesus. He says, coming to Him as a, notice, living stone, he says. As a living stone. Now that's a miraculous thing. Stones, the last time I checked, and rocks, they're not alive. So that's a miracle, a stone that has life in it. And what the Bible is doing here is metaphorically picturing Jesus as a mighty stone. Now when you think of a rock or you think of a stone, that represents something that's what? Solid, something that's stable and sturdy. It's something that you can uh, see as a good thing to build upon. And the Bible pictures God in this way multiple times throughout the scripture. As a rock or as a stone. Deuteronomy 32 repeatedly portrays God as a rock. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, No one is holy like the Lord, nor is there any rock like our God. You see the same statements in 2 Samuel 22. All throughout the Psalms, there are references to God as a rock, as well as Isaiah 8 and 28, texts that Peter himself even quotes here. Daniel 2, Jesus is spoken of as a smiting stone to come and devastate the revived Roman Empire in the last days. When you go over to the New Testament, you see Jesus directly pictured and referred to as a rock and a stone there. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus was that rock that gave the water in the wilderness. As well as, again, in Luke 20 and Acts 2 and Ephesians 2, Jesus is portrayed as the cornerstone as we're looking at here this morning. The point simply is this, is that we need to see and always remember the value of coming to Jesus, understanding metaphorically what his life and his nature represents. As a, as a stone or as a rock, Jesus is someone who is solid and stable and sturdy in who he is. And he'll never change. Unlike people who are like shifting sand, Jesus is stable and sturdy and he will never change on you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one relationship you don't ever have to worry about things changing in because he's stable and he's solid in who he is. Jesus is someone that we can cling to for support. He's someone that we can hang on to. He is unshakable and he is immovable. Jesus is someone that we can build our lives upon. A stable foundation. In Matthew 7, Jesus said these words. He said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
But to everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. Interesting, in that little, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, parable, analogy, Jesus shows two different foundations for life. And he says, look, storms come against both lives. Storms come against everybody's life and, and things that will rattle you down to the foundation and shake you to the core of your being and try and strip everything away from your life. These things happen to every person, whether they're following God, not following God. Uh, it's just, it's part of life. And Jesus says, however, you can have a solid rock foundation or you can have a sandy foundation where everything falls apart, even down to the core, and then even the foundations of your life fall apart as well. And he said, the one distinct difference, he says, is taking heed and putting into practice what the Word of God says. He says, the person who has a stable rock foundation is the one who hears my Word and does it. They respond to it. They live by the Word of God. The other person, Jesus says, they hear the Word of God, but they don't do anything with it. They hear it, they listen to it, but they don't submit to it, they don't obey it, and they don't let it be practiced in their life. And that determines a, a foundation at the core of our life. And Jesus says, look, you can build your life on something solid if you build your life on my words and the things that I teach you and it gives a tremendous foundation now we have to realize if we seek to do that and build on the solid foundation of the living stone of Jesus Christ that the world's perspective toward our pursuing Jesus in relationship and building our life on him that's going to be deemed by the world as foolish as ludicrous because they fail to see Jesus for who he is. That's what Peter's pointing out in verse 4 in the end when he shows us that the world primarily refused Jesus in his first coming. He says Jesus is that living stone who was rejected by men but yet is chosen by God and precious. Like a worthless stone of no value when Jesus came the first time, many rejected him and they just cast him aside as I don't need him. And I don't need what he offers. They just cast him aside like a worthless, valueless stone. However, to God, he is the chosen son of God, the Savior, and he is very precious. And Peter will talk more about this. We'll see in verses 6 through 8. Look at me in verse 5. Peter then goes on, you also as living stones, he says, are being built up a spiritual house. So after calling Jesus the living stone, Peter next likens our individual lives to living stones being sort of drawn from a quarry and then assembled together with others to form a temple for God's dwelling place. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that all believers together are now what make up the temple of God on earth where God's presence dwells. So all Believers, the picture here is our lives as individual stones being joined together to make an overall temple for God. It portrays the point, it portrays God's plan for interdependence upon one another as children of God. It is God's design and intention that there be interdependence of Christians upon one another. That like stones assembled together, that we are all to be connected because we are connected in the same spiritual household and joined together. Each person in the body of Christ, each individual Christian has a purpose. There is a reason for your existence. There is a reason that you were saved and put into the church, into the body of Christ, into the family and household of God because God has a purpose for you. God has a unique, specific reason for your life, your special gifts, your callings, who you are, and together we create a spiritual framework for God's presence to dwell among us and to move in our midst and accomplish his works in us and through us. Paul states it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 22. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Peter, understanding these things himself, having heard Jesus talked about these things, knowing that Jesus is, he's the foundation, 
He's the rock upon which the church is built. He's the cornerstone. He now portrays in verse 5, you and I as individual Christians as smaller living stones as well, who he says here in verse 5 are being built up as a spiritual house. Again, if I can illustrate, when you and I are saved, you could very well say, basically, God quarried you out of the pit of sin. And he quarried you out of the pit of sin and took you out of that. And now he begins a process of shaping our lives and shaping us into the image of Christ. And a part of that shaping process, a part of the reason for that is for ultimately our insertion into the body of Christ, the household of God, among other believers so the Lord can put us right where he sees that we fit. And he takes our life and he begins to shape it and develop it because he sees, look, this is exactly where you fit. This is right where you belong in the body of Christ. With this particular local group of believers in, in, and, and even in this particular spot. You know, some of us belong up here. Some of us belong over here. Some of us belong near a doorway. Some of us belong near a window. And he says, look, this is exactly where you fit at. And God, by his design and his determination, knowing our personality, our gifts, our background, our likes, our dislikes, the things that he has given us abilities to do and our nature and our temperament. And I think he even thinks about, hey, who would they, who would they fit kind of next to? It'd be good if they were closer to this person, but I better keep them away from this person because that, yeah, that might make the whole house crumble if I put those two together. And God in his wisdom takes us and he shapes our lives and molds and develops us and puts us right where we see that we fit. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, that reminds us we have an intended purpose. We have something that we are to contribute to the overall household of God. We have a purpose. Look, don't tell me, oh, I have nothing to offer. I'm just, you know, I'm a toenail in the body of Christ. I'm worse. I'm the toe jam in the body of Christ. I have nothing to offer. No talents, no Look, that is not true. The Bible says each person has a gift. Paul says in Ephesians 4, the body grows as each part does its share. You do have a purpose. You do have an intention. Maybe you haven't discovered it yet. I would challenge you to do that. Maybe it's intercessory prayer. Maybe it's saying, oh, I don't have an official position. I'm not a labeled a children's worker or labeled an usher. But maybe you can be labeled the sensitive, kind person who, when you come to church on Sunday morning, looks around and says, does anybody look depressed this morning? Does anybody look sad? Or anybody look like that maybe they're kind of awkward and, and, or maybe it's their first time here and nobody said hi to them. And, and maybe I can go over and just show the love of God to them. Or I can just say, hey, how, how's your week been? Or, hey, how can I pray for you this week? I know you have to get out of here, but is there a way I could pray for you this week and just to demonstrate the love of God to somebody? So often we just overlook the fact that, listen, God wants to use your life. I don't care who you are, what you've done, or what you think that you don't possess. God has a purpose for you. He wants to use your life and work through your life, and he can. And as a living stone, he wants to put you in that place right where you belong. And secondarily, we also need to realize this means that we all need the support and interconnection of other living stones or other Christians, listen, in order to stay in the proper place that we are supposed to spiritually. In order to stay put and to stay in place spiritually where we're supposed to be, I need to be interconnected to other believers. Consider the imagery again. In working on fitting stones together in a shaping process, there's cutting, there's chiseling to take away maybe what would hinder or interfere. There's a grinding process to take off the rough edges, to shape it into its proper purpose. And I tell you this by personal experience and by observation, a lot of that shaping process happens in family life among the children of God, in a local church experience. Listen, we can study all we want. Be loving, love people. Forgive, be patient, be kind, whatever. We, we can read all this. Oh, that's great stuff, man. I, I, we can quote those Bible verses. But God said, no, I want you to live those Bible verses. And you know how I'm going to do it? Just like you put somebody in a natural family. You know, the best thing, the best thing for anybody's character development is to live in a family. Because you have to learn how to live with other selfish, rude, ignorant, imperfect, right? We've got enough adjectives there. People just like yourself. And you develop character there. You learn how to be patient. 
You learn how to forgive. You learn how to say sorry. You learn how to cooperate. You learn how to give and take. You learn how to be patient. Listen, the church is no different. It's a family. We can learn spiritual truths, but it's as we live among one another, we then learn how to practice spiritual truths. When I watch people many a times jump from church to church to church to church, oh, this happened, oh, somebody stepped on my toes there, this, here's what I find, here's what I find follows that pattern. That person remains a very immature Christian. They remain like a baby in a nursery because they never learn how to settle in and to live among a family of God's people and learn how to interact in relationships and mature and develop bonds and grow and give and take and how to facilitate the truths of God's word in family living among God's people. Hey, you and I cannot be all that God intends for us to become apart from connection to other Christians. God wants to use other Christians to grind the rough edges off my life. God wants to use me and use you in each other's lives to chisel away and, 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 and to cause us to be shaped and developed into everything God intends for us to be. It's part of God's plan. He's doing a good thing to cause us to become more balanced and to become more beneficial. And interaction with other believers is a vital part of God's plan for growth and development. Again, by way of illustration, if you pull just one concrete block, we're in a room with, if you pull just one concrete masonry block out of a wall, guess what? You've just compromised the entire structure. And in the same way, not only when when I or if you disconnect from the body of Christ from being in regular fellowship, not only do we, in a sense, put ourselves in detriment when we isolate and we don't then develop and experience all God intends to us because of our disconnection, but our, our block, when we disconnect it, it leaves a vacancy. We're not just harming ourselves, whether we realize it or not, we're harming everyone else because there's something that we're to be contributing by our purpose there. And God's saying, listen, you're like living stones fit together. This is the way I work in your life. And there is a purpose for Christian fellowship. We need each other in the body of Christ. God uses us to do his works in us through one another, through rubbing against each other and grinding against one another and personality. That's how God shapes and develops in many ways to a great degree our spiritual character in our maturity. So he says, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. He says, a holy priesthood, and there the picture again picks up from the Old Testament, Aaron's sons from the tribes of Levi. They were the set-apart priesthood. They had special access to the presence of God. And the priesthood in the Old Testament, they had a twofold ministry. They brought God to the people, and they also brought people to God. And in the same way, you and I, the Bible says now, in Christ, we have now been made a spiritual priesthood, a holy priesthood. We have special access to God through Jesus Christ. And more than that, we have a twofold ministry just like a priesthood here on this earth. We have a ministry and responsibility as Christians to bring God to people by representing the Lord and bringing his word to them. And we also have the privilege to bring people to God through intercessory prayer and through our ministry to them. And Peter, continuing with this idea of a holy priesthood in verse 5, says, like a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he mentions that like a holy priesthood, we as well offer, he says, sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's part of our role and responsibility. Now, question becomes, well, what are those? What are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer to God through Jesus Christ? Well, let me cite just a few biblical examples. I think there are probably many, but a few biblical examples are given to us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the Bible says that one of the spiritual sacrifices we can give to God is by yielding our life to God and just saying, God, here's my body. 
Here's my life. Use me like an instrument for your purposes. I dedicate my life and my body to you. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, Therefore by Jesus let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So another way we can offer spiritual sacrifices, the Bible says, is through praise. It's through prayer and praising God or by coming together corporately and singing his praises. It says that when we continually offer the sacrifice of praise, when we sing and worship the Lord in an assembly, we are offering to God a sacrifice of praise. Now that may cost, you know, a sacrifice costs the person something. Sometimes it costs you something to say, man, I really don't feel like, <laughs> I really don't feel like worshiping God. I really don't feel like singing, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a sacrifice of praise. I'm going to bring praise to God because I want to offer him that offering to praise him and to bless his heart. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do good and share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So when we do kind acts of love and serve people in love in various ways, those are spiritual sacrifices. And we saw in our study in Philippians 4 as well that the way we use our resources, whether helping somebody in a need personally or supporting ministry, that those as well are seen as spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And, and he uses all these different types of spiritual sacrifices like tools in his building process to build the church and to accomplish his work. Now notice with me before we move on from verse 5, there is a specific criteria for, in a sense, a requirement for those spiritual sacrifices we offer to be, this is the key word, acceptable to God. You see what he says, verse 5? Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now I think this is important. These things that we do must be done in direct connection to our relationship with Jesus. It's only when we do such things for Jesus' sake, unto Jesus and in Jesus' name, and as Jesus enables us through our relationship with him, that is what then makes those sacrifices acceptable to God. I point that out for this reason, because to offer such things good works, singing songs, giving money, helping people out, to offer sacrifices to God, listen, to try and just make our own conscience feel good, or to offer sacrifices to God to kind of subconsciously almost kind of buy God off, to think, hey, well, if I just, you know, buy God off enough, then he'll give me some graces, and, and I, listen, that's not acceptable. That's not approved. The Bible's very clear here that our sacrifices are spiritual sacrifices that become acceptable to God. To do such things just to make my conscience feel good or to do things that are good works in a sense, uh, you know, that are sacrifices, all that becomes is just religious duty or it can just become philanthropy which is wonderful, but evil people can do religious duties. Wicked people can do very philanthropic things. God says, no, if it is not directly connected to a relationship with Jesus, then it's not really an acceptable sacrifice. It may be a sacrifice, but it's just social kindness. It's charity work. It's not an acceptable sacrifice. It's through Jesus things become acceptable to God. Very, very important. Now, it's almost as if verse 5 is parenthetical because Peter now returns directly back to speaking about Jesus himself as he runs now through verse 6 to 8 and quotes a couple verses, which we'll see picks back up to reinforce his statement at the end of verse 4 where he said that Jesus was rejected by men but chosen by God in precious and now it's as if in verse 6 he comes back to that saying, Therefore it's contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Again, we notice once again Peter uses scripture as the foundation for his beliefs and for his teaching 
He'd already called Jesus a living stone in verse 4 that was rejected by men but chosen and precious to God. And now he points out how the reason he stated that is because he saw that God predicted that in his word and Jesus fulfilled that with his life. He quotes here in verse 6 from Isaiah 28:16, where God said, Behold, I'm going to lay a stone in Zion which will be a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. Again, a cornerstone we know was basically like the large foundation stone in an ancient structure. It was the first stone that they set in place when they were going to build something. And that cornerstone was the foundational stone and everything else in the building process was measured then off the cornerstone once it was set. Everything lined up off the cornerstone. So the cornerstone was very, very important because everything was built off the cornerstone. Everything fit according to the cornerstone so it was carefully chosen. It was precious due to what was built off of it. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And that means that for our individual lives as Christians, if Jesus is the chief cornerstone and we're a bunch of living stones, that all of us are to live in direct relation to Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, which means this, practically. I have to measure everything in my life not off of what you're doing as a Christian. I have to measure everything in my life off of the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I have to line everything, I, uh, everything up in my life off of Jesus' standard, not off of the church's standard, not off the world's standards, not off of what are the standards of other Christians. My standards must come as an individual Christian off of my dependence and interrelation to the cornerstone. So I have to determine what's right and wrong, acceptable and not acceptable by lining my life up off of Jesus' standards for me. And as a church, the same applies. If Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, we should then be determining the acceptability of everything off of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. That means we measure our doctrine off of Jesus. We measure what's acceptable and unacceptable doctrinally off of Jesus' standard and what's acceptable to him. The direction that we take is determined by Jesus. What's acceptable and non-acceptable and what we do and don't do, our decisions, how we interact with one another. It all lines back up with, hey, how does Jesus feel about this? And we have to seek Jesus to see what he says because Jesus is the foundation stone. And if we disconnect from that or we try and take our own approach, we can really begin to get in trouble. And that's why Jesus says, look, whoever believes on him, the promise, will by no means be put to shame. There'll never be regret if we measure things off of Jesus. He continues verse 7 saying, Therefore to you who believe he is precious. And I love this. Here Peter speaks of his experience with the Lord and anyone who has experience with the Lord and builds their life on him. Peter says to you who believe upon him, he is precious. Precious. Now, that's the, I don't know if you've noticed, the fifth time that Peter has used that word precious. And I find this almost humorous myself because here's Peter. He's this burly, very masculine, rugged fisherman. I mean, Peter probably was something like the ancient version of a Duck Dynasty guy, if you get my drift here. And then here's Peter, this very masculine, rugged fisherman, and yet he has a very tender heart toward the things of God. And he's got the balance on that. He says, man, Jesus, he's so precious. Well, it sounds like a girly word, precious. I, have, I live with all girls, precious. Precious, Peter, what are you saying that for? Oh, Jesus, so precious. Precious means, you know, cherished and valuable and important. And to Peter, Jesus had become all those things. Through his relationship with the Lord, here's Peter. He loved fishing. He lived for fishing. He was driven by fishing, that was his thing. But then Jesus saved him and transformed him and made him a fisher of men. And now Peter says, you know what? There is no one or anyone or anything that's more precious to me than Jesus. Peter's life was transformed and the value of Jesus grew in his life. And for you and I, does he not become more and more and more precious to us the more that we know him, the more that we walk with him? You know, like Peter has stated so far, we may face sickness and trials and suffering, but chapter 1 said that our faith is more precious than gold. 
We may fail and make mistakes and struggle with our past sins and our our present mistakes. But Peter said in chapter 1, but there's the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us no matter how deep the stain or how great the failure. When we're lonely and disappointed, it's the presence of Jesus that's precious to us. And the more we walk with him and the more we value him and the more precious he is to us, really, that ultimately causes our relationship with him to open us up to greater works of God in our lives. Because when somebody's precious to you, you're very dedicated to them. And you avail yourself to them in a much greater way. Well, look what Peter then says on the other side of that. In contrast, he says, but to those who are disobedient... And the idea there, verse 7, is who refuse to obey him in faith or follow him. The stone which the builders rejected, and that would be the religious leaders he's quoting in regards to, has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So in contrast to those who obediently respond to Jesus in belief, there are those who will reject Jesus as well. And the unsaved person chooses to build their life independent of Jesus according to their own set of blueprints and according to their own standards. And Peter says to those who are like this living in disobedience, they won't trust Jesus enough to build their life according to his standards. Peter quotes the prophecy here from Psalm 118 in verse 7 regarding the religious leaders who the first time when Jesus came, they refused Jesus and what God was trying to build in his work with Jesus. And why did the religious leaders refuse Jesus? For one simple reason, because Jesus did not fit into their plans. He wasn't who they expected him to be as the Messiah. He wasn't who they wanted him to be. He wasn't who they preferred him to be. And because he did not fit their plan, they pushed him aside. Because he didn't fit into their plan, instead of changing their plan and submitting, they said, hey, you don't fit in my plans. So they pushed Jesus aside and they cast him aside and rejected him in disobedience. And as a result, Peter quotes Isaiah 8, Jesus became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, if a person rejects Jesus, that's what he becomes, then a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in their life. Because, again, a rock... It's pretty stable and solid. And Jesus is a rock. He's not going to change. He won't change for any man. And because of that, if a person doesn't submit to him and let their life be broken by him and embrace him, what happens then is in that rejection, Jesus then just becomes a stumbling block in their life. And they perpetually stumble over his life. And there are many today, sadly, 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 who for the same reason still reject Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't fit into their plan. And if Jesus doesn't fit into their plan, like he says the end of verse 8, they stumble being disobedient to the word. And as long as a person rejects Jesus for who he is in their life, and as long as a person remains disobedient to the word of God by living it out, they will perpetually stumble and stumble and stumble because they're not living according to the design God intended for him. Hey, this morning, can I challenge us? Are you letting the Lord work in your life? If you're a Christian, are you coming to him? Are you putting the priority on collectively being with God's people so that the work of God can take place in your life? Are you building your life upon Jesus as the cornerstone? And more importantly, if you're here and you have never come to Jesus Christ yet, you're going to keep stumbling your way through life until you let God work in your life through a relationship with Jesus Christ.